last month was my birthday, and so one of my boys got me a gift, and he got me the Born Identity. Huh? He didn't just get me the first movie, he got me the first three movies in that series, Jason Bourne. Matt Damon plays Jason Bourne. And um, so it's about this guy, Jason Bourne, who is a CIA agent, but he doesn't know that because he's had this experience that's given him amnesia. So he doesn't know who he is. And so the movie is about him trying to find out who he is. So he's on the run from the authorities, uh, and he meets with this young woman, she's very pretty, her name is Marie, um, and she's taking him from Switzerland to Germany, and she's just asking him some simple questions, and finally he just blurts out, I don't know who I am, and I don't know where I'm going. And then the next scene is the two of them at this truck stop. And at this truck stop, he's trying to give her bits and pieces of information about himself. And he just kind of, you know, rants. He says, who has a safety deposit box full of cash and six passports and a gun? I mean, who has that? I go into a place and the first thing I look for are the exits. Uh, uh, who does that? Uh, I can tell you the license plate tags of all six cars out in the parking lot. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed. I can tell you that the guy at the counter weighs about 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I can tell you that the best place to find a gun uh, is in the glove compartment of that gray truck outside. I mean, who does that? Who, I can tell you that at this altitude, uh, I can run flat out for a half a mile before my hands stop shaking. Now, who can, who can do that but not know who they are? I don't know why I asked for the movie series. I can quote half the lines. <laughs> we'll see how I do with the Bible, right? <laughs> It's an entertaining movie. And it's a great parable. Because it's possible to be tactically proficient, yet strategically clueless and purposeless. It's possible to have you know, very specific vocational skills and yet not have an overarching you know, narrative about the direction of your life. Yeah, it's a movie, but I don't know that it's fiction. We have this desperation for identity. We want to know who we are. We want to know where we're going. We want to know that our lives really count and mean something. And thus this series, I Am. Who am I? We're answering that question here. And if you were with us last week, you remember that before we talked about the question, who am I? We dealt with another question. A more important question. A question that if you don't get settled in your mind, the whole trajectory of everything else of what we're about to talk about will make absolutely no sense to you whatsoever. 
We talked about the question that we need to ask before we ask the question, who am I? And it's this question, who is best qualified to tell me who I am? Who is most credentialed? Who is the one who has um, um, really the, the, the knowledge and the insight and the perception into my life? And we talked about how the most common mistaken assumption that people make is that they are the expert of their lives. That I know myself more than uh, anybody else knows me. We talked about that. We talked about the fallacy of actually believing that. The fallacy of believing that you are in fact the sum of your desires. And we looked at a psalm that really challenged that perspective. Psalm 139. The psalmist says, David says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know me. You are acquainted with all of my ways. You know when I get up. You know when I lie down. Before a word is even out of my mouth, you know that. God has already written the biography of your life. Already. It's done. You know me. You're with me. There's never a moment that I am out of the presence of God, ever. Uh, even when it's dark, David says, the darkness is as day to you. That's, that's your presence. You know me, you're with me, and you made me. You made me. If you believe that this life is not all there is, if you believe that this life is all there is and that's it, none of what I'm about to talk about is going to make any sense to you whatsoever. But if you believe that this life is not all there is and that outside this life, outside this world, is a transcendent person who knows everything, who created everything, who is all-powerful, and who is everywhere this person made you and created you. And as the creator and maker and designer, he has the intel on your life. And you can trust him. You will then learn that your you will find yourself when you find your identity and your refuge in your creator and in your maker. You will find yourself... When you find your creator, you will find yourself when you find your creator. Do you want to know yourself? Then get to know your creator, and you will know yourself. David says that in Psalm 139. And if this is the one who knows you and is with you and has made you, you can trust him. He is trustworthy. Or as the Proverbs uh, Three, five, and six, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. You can trust him, okay? Amen. Now, if you're ready to do that, then you're ready for this passage of Scripture. That I want you to turn to now in the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. You'll find that on page 976 of your church Bibles. And I want to read Paul's letter to a, to a spiritual community 
that gathered 2,000 years ago in the ancient city of Ephesus, Paul wrote these words, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. <laughs> who am I? Oh, the Apostle Paul is convinced to the core of his soul that Jesus Christ being God in the flesh, his identity, Paul's meaning, Paul's purpose, Paul's destination, who he is and where he's going is solely grounded in Christ. In Christ. Who am I? Paul says, I am in Christ. See, that's the little phrase that Paul uses throughout these verses and in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. I am in Christ. You know the most common phrase or description in the Bible of a Christ follower is actually not the word Christian. The word Christian only appears three times in the New Testament uh, it appears in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. It appears in Acts chapter 26, verse 28. It appears in 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, verse 16. Christian, I mean, this is what we use, but, but Paul uses another phrase. It's this phrase that we see repeated so often in this book of Ephesians. It's the phrase, in Christ. In fact, just in Paul's letters alone, in Christ, appears 164 times. And it dominates this first chapter in Ephesians. Look back up at verse 3. We read, in Christ, we've been blessed beyond measure. 
Verse 4 says, in Christ, we've been chosen by God before creation. Look at verse 7. In Christ, we have forgiveness and redemption. Verse 10 says, in Christ, all are to be united in heaven and earth. Verse 11 says, in Christ, we have an inheritance. In Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, Christ's own spirit to seal us and stamp us as his own and to be the deposit, the guarantee, the certainty of all that is to come, verses 13 and 14. We are, who am I? I am in Christ, Paul says. Now, to be in Christ does not, doesn't mean to be inside Christ, like my clothes are inside my closet or my tools are inside my tool chest. That's not what it means. Or, or, or as if Christ were just this outer suit of this superhero costume Iron Man. That's not what it means to be in Christ. Being in Christ means this. It means we are joined to Christ. It means we are united to Christ. Being in Christ has to do with union with Christ, being bound to Christ in the same way that my limbs are are united to my body, in the same mysterious way that parents are united to their children at their birth, in the, the mysterious way that a husband and a wife are united in marriage. That's what it means to be in Christ. To be in Christ is, as Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine, and you are the branches. And whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. To be in Christ means that that we live together with Jesus in a covenant relationship. To be in Christ means that we cohabit with Christ in a covenant relationship. It means that we are in a life partnership relationship with the creator of the universe and it means that what happens to Jesus happens to us because the king represents the people what's true of Jesus is true of us Uh, in the old testament when David fought Goliath David was fighting as Israel's representative and that David won meant Israel won And Jesus is the true David. And in him, all that is true of him is true of us. And so to be in Christ means that God sees us as he sees Jesus. To be in Christ means that God loves us with the same passion that he loves Jesus. Now just sit in that for a minute, would you? Because... I fear that so many of us walk into this place after maybe a week that you've had and you just, you just, you just assume that God has a low-grade level of irritation toward you. That he just tolerates you. I am in Christ. We are in Christ. That means that God loves us as passionately as he loves his son. And it means that that to be in Christ means that Resurrection Sunday didn't just happen to Jesus. It means that Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. For to be in Christ means that we've been seated in the heavenly places, even while we live on earth now. Glance over to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. 
where Paul says, by grace you have been saved, and God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ is to acknowledge the existence of another realm to declare and welcome the truth that there is this life and then there is the life to come. That there is this age and then there is the age to come. And it's not as if the two ages kind of just edge up to one another. That's not it. It's that these ages overlap. And the one age, the present age, is fading. But the true age, Christ's age, is gaining, and to be in Christ is to pledge allegiance to the, to the true king of the new age. And so to be in Christ is to live under his rule. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and planted us into his kingdom, another dominion. We were in this dominion, the dominion of a fading age, the dominion of death, but now we have been placed. We, he has placed us into his dominion. But it's a dominion nonetheless. That sounds political, pastor. It is very political. Jesus' political plan is to rule the world through his people. He has, we've been made in his image. And God is renewing all things in Christ. Including the original purpose and end for which he made us. And that is to Represent him by flooding the earth with his glory, his glory in Christ through us to reflect his sovereign rule. And do you want to know what God's chief political weapon is? It is self-sacrificing love. And like Christ himself, being joined to him means kingdom expansion through misunderstanding, suffering, violence, and execution. And then in a spectacular display of power, God brings life out of a place where there is nothing but death. See, Paul's life himself mirrors the life and ministry of Jesus. Think about the Apostle Paul's Life throughout the book of Acts, it parallels Christ. Paul is continually misunderstood, and he's beaten, and he nearly dies. And in fact, in some sense, there's sort of a, a death at sea shipwreck that occurs. All of this prior to proclaiming the gospel under the nose of Caesar in the heart of the Roman Empire, the capital city itself. And he's proclaiming the news that Jesus is the true emperor. There's a new king in town, Nero, and his name is Jesus. <laughs> That's why Paul says in Ephesians 1, and 23, and he put all things under his feet. What does all things mean? Well, I've studied it in the Greek, and it means all things, everything. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Who am I? I am in Christ. And what does that mean? It means being united with Christ, joined to Christ, union with Christ. It means that what happens to Jesus happens to us. What's true of Jesus is true of us. That's what it means. 
Well, what is the significance of this? What, what makes being in Christ such an important part of our identity? Well, glance back at Ephesians 1.23, where Paul concludes this chapter by saying, which is his body, the fullness of him. What does the fullness of him refer to? It refers to his body. What does his body refer to? Go back up to verse 22. The church. The church is the, who's that? That's us. We are the fullness of him who fills all in all. And that gets to the significance of being in Christ. Because being in Christ um, is, the, is the answer to your white hot why. Your white hot why. In August, um, our staff went to a leadership conference. And in one of the sessions, we learned about uh, the white hot why. The white hot why. Simon Simic's book, Start With The Why. He talks about how in any business or organization, um, there are three questions. There's the what, there's the how, and there's the why. There's the what. What do you do? Well, we feed the hungry, or we make widgets, or we serve coffee, or we prepare and produce uh, worship services. That's the what. Well, there, what's the how? Well, the how is... You know, how you do what you do, right? Uh, Amazon sells products. How? On the internet. Walgreens sells uh, prescriptions and, and over-the-counter stuff. How? By strategically placing itself on prominent intersections. The what and the how. And, but then there's the why. And often there's a huge disconnect between the, the what and the how and the why. Why do we make coffee? And why are we a drugstore? Why do we sell on the internet? Why do we gather as a church? And then we learned that it's a very personal question. What's your white hot why? Your white hot why? Bob Buford authored a book called Halftime. And it's a book about purposeful living. And uh, Buford told about a conversation he had with a high-powered strategic planner whom he had hired to think through the, the back half of his life, and thus the book Halftime. Buford had been very successful in business, but had grown restless, and his heart was stirring for more. And so he hired a strategic planner to hear about his life and his story, and after a few hours of listening, the, this planner took a piece of paper, and he drew a, a box at the top. And he said, Bob, you know, in the last few hours, I've heard you talk about two things. I've heard you talk about money, and I've heard you talk about Jesus Christ. Now, if you want me to help you, if you want me to help you build your business and make a whole bunch of more money, I can do that. I, we can put together a plan. Or if you want me to help you put together a plan to make Christ first, then we can do that too. But you cannot have both. You have to choose. And so the strategic planner, whom Bob Buford said was actually not a Christian, was not in Christ, he was an agnostic, he took the piece of paper and he drew the box at the top and he slid it across the desk with the pen and said, Bob, what's going to be in your top box? What's going to be your white hot 
Why? And that's a question for every one of us here. You see, whatever is in your top box is fueling you to higher energy levels and a deeper sense of direction and identity. You are being filled with the fullness of the one who fills all in all, or whatever is in your top box is slowly but surely depleting you of your life, robbing you of the identity and destiny which God desires. So which is it? Well, for the Apostle Paul, it was a no-brainer. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. There it is. I want to be found in him. Jesus was Paul's white hot why. Jesus was the name in Paul's top box. Is he yours? Is he yours? I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ, meaning I'm I'm united to Christ. I'm joined to Christ. I'm connected to Christ. What's true of Christ is true of me. And this is so significant because he he is the meaning of my life. And I can lose everything, everything, even my life, even my life, and I'll be okay because he's in my top box. That's what that's why it matters, church. Well, let's say he is for us. What's that mean? Well, let's go back to what we just said. To be in Christ means that what is true of Christ is true of us. So here's the now what. Here's the now what. Just as Jesus said while he was being crucified, Father, forgive them. To be joined to Christ, to be united to Christ, to have Christ as your white hot why means that we're going to say the same thing to our enemies. We're going to say the same thing to those who frustrate us. We're going to say the same thing to those who anger us. We're going to say the same thing to those who hurt us. Father, forgive them. Just as Jesus was given for the life of the world, see, what's true of him is true of us. And so, so we're going to be given for the life of the world. We're going to be expended for the life of the world. We are. God did not create our church family so that we could huddle up and protect ourselves from the world. And nor do we gather here each Sunday as the people of God who feel like we've met the standard and now we can congratulate ourselves on a job well done. No. Instead, we are the gathered people of God. We come together to sharpen one another and gain strength before going out to do the good works which God has prepared for us to do. Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. You are the workmanship of Christ. I am the workmanship of Christ. We are his workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are to go out and radiate the life of Jesus because what's true of him is true of us, to be in Christ. To be in Christ means that that when we gather here, church family, we're not just gathering here as like-minded believers who kind of sing the same songs and believe the same things. We gather as the living presence of Christ. We are literally the body of Christ, the very presence of Jesus on earth. And that means discipleship, listen, discipleship is not about, at its core, discipleship is not about just becoming a more moral person. I was less moral then, but I've been in Christ and I'm going to church and now I'm being good and I'm behaving, I'm becoming more moral. That is not what discipleship is at its core. It's not. What discipleship is, is asking the question, Where would Jesus go in this world today if he were here? Well, he is here. So he would go to places in this world full of pain. He would ask someone's name. He would get to know that someone. He would find out that person's needs and see if if he could help. That's discipleship. He would go to the marginalized. He would go to the broken. He would go to the prostitutes and the tax collectors. He would go to those who could not give in return. And so that's what we do. Discipleship means that we're going to those risky places. We're going to places where we could be misunderstood. And we go to painful places, just as Christ did. And that means when you go to painful places, you will have the painful privilege of experiencing God's own heart breaking as he looks out on this broken world. Oh, and here's something else. When you're going out to those broken places, and I think this is the hardest thing, at least it is for me. To be in Christ means going out into those broken places and then making peace with the truth that some things aren't going to get fixed this side of heaven. Uh, so, us minister types, we, we're fixers. We like to fix things. But ministry is not always about knowing what to say. Ministry is not about fixing everything in sight that's broken. It's not. Here's what ministry is about. Ministry is about connecting people with Christ so that they are able to think as Christ would have them think and speak as Christ would have them speak and desire what Christ would have them desire and to do what he calls them to do whether or not their situation gets fixed. It involves exposing the hurt and the lost and the confused to God's glory so that they will give up their pursuit of their own glory and instead be amazed and fall on their knees in humility before His. For the love of Christ controls us, Paul says. 
Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. My biggest problem in life today is that I want to live for myself. I want to live for the kingdom of Randy. I want to live for my glory and my honor and my righteousness as I define righteousness. That's my biggest problem. And Jesus died to rescue me from that decaying kingdom and to put me into his kingdom, his kingdom of life and vitality. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died, and was raised. That's the now what, church? What? I'm in Christ. I'm united with Christ. I'm joined with Christ. What's true of Christ is true of me. So what? <laughs> well, that, may, that, that means he's my white hot why. <laughs> I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. And now what? Now what is a journey of going out into the world as his very presence? And that, so if we are the presence, then, then that changes our relationships with one another. Not from strangers or attenders, but brothers and sisters in the family of God. Are you in Christ today? Are you? If not, you want to know how that happens? Well, go back to Philippians 3.9. Paul says, I want, to, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will direct your path with help. For we are saved by grace through faith. And this not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. That's how you get into Christ. And now, I just want to challenge you to do some business with God here in the next few minutes. We're going to be singing a song, and then we're going to be heading into a time of communion. And, and Christ has given us two wonderful pictures of being united with Christ. And one of them is communion. And symbols of our salvation, pictures. You see, why are we able to be united with Christ? Because He united Himself to us by putting on a body, walking the face of this earth, living the life that we could never live, and dying the death that we should have died. He did that for us. The other symbol is this beautiful symbol of baptism. It's putting on, this symbolic picture of putting on Christ, being united with Christ, Joining Christ, it's not the water that does it. 
It's a picture. It's a symbol of our salvation. And, and I want you to do business with God in this next few minutes. And if you want to talk more about what that is about, I want you to meet me after second service. We're going to be having a class as we prepare for our baptisms at the Y next Sunday. And we'll talk more about the picture of baptism and how it pertains to being united with Christ. Oh, Paul says that we've been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Do you want every spiritual blessing? Do you want the assurance of knowing that God loves you with the same passion that he loves Jesus? Well, you need to be in Christ. <laughs> See, here's, here's the deal. God does not love you as you are. He loves you as you are in Christ. In Christ. He wants you to be in Christ. Are you? Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you sent your Son to put on human flesh. Thank you so much that Christianity is not a code of conduct, but rather Christianity is an abiding, living union with the creator of this universe, Jesus Christ. Thank you for all of the benefits that we have in him. Thank you that in him we can have confidence without pride that we can have purpose with humility. Thank you in Jesus' name.